Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This week on Forum, we're looking back on our time in the pandemic. It was on this day, one year ago, March 16, 2020, that Bay Area health officers issued the nation's first shelter-in-place order, cementing the reality that this would be a year unlike any other. We'll start today recalling the shock of those early weeks as people began to fall ill and life began to change. The unthinkable... Millions sick, schools shuttered, communities brought to a standstill, morphed into the everyday. It's been a surreal time, and we want to know what you'll remember from it. That's ahead on Forum right after this news. As KQED searches for a permanent forum host for the 9 a.m. hour, I'll be filling in this week as your guest host. I'm an Oakland resident, staff writer at The Atlantic Magazine, and I've spent the past year co-running the COVID tracking project, which kept me immersed in the data and science of the pandemic. During my stint here, we'll be looking back at the year that was, the history and future of pandemics, and trying to process what we've all been through with you, the forum community. A year ago today, the sun rose over an uneasy Bay Area, People still filled the streets, even if the toilet paper was no longer on the shelves. There were just 273 cases confirmed in the Bay, and that seemed like a lot. Later on March 16th of last year, a group of local health officials held a press conference to declare the nation's first shelter-in-place order. Santa Clara Health Officer Sarah Cody spoke for the group. These new orders direct all individuals to shelter at their place of residence and maintain social distancing of at least six feet from any other person when outside their resident. The stay-at-home order was set for three weeks. It felt, I mean, still feels, listening back to it, surreal. Even those of us engaged in pandemic reporting had no idea that we were in for a year of lockdowns, restrictions, uncertainty, and death. Now we've seen tens of millions of cases, more than 55,000 deaths in California alone, and 535,000 in the United States. The scale of the pandemic is so huge, it can actually blot out the most important reality that each of those numbers represents a person, a person who got sick. So here to talk about her experience in those early days, we have Carla Monteroso, the CEO of Code2040, an organization which is working to bring racial equity to the tech industry. In March, she started to feel sick. Thank you for joining us, Carla. Uh, Lovely to be here, Alexis. So uh, take us back to the beginning. You're an extremely busy nonprofit leader working on big things. Were you paying attention to the news about the virus when it first started circulating in China? I was. um, We had our um, 
general manager, current acting CEO, Mimi Fox Melton, was um, making sure that this was a big part of what we were thinking about. Um, and we actually closed down the office before the shelter in place order. Um, but we never really anticipated what the year would bring. And so what did you know about the sort of symptoms of COVID? I mean, did you, how did you know that you were sick? What I knew was dry cough, uh, low-grade fever, um, and I knew it was bad, right? That's about as much Mm -hmm. as I knew. So I, um, I think on the 13th is when I first got sick and I spent three days in denial, Um, I was still quarantining, but by the time I reached Monday and had a staff meeting and had had a hacking dry cough through the entire staff meeting, I realized that I couldn't be in denial anymore. And at at that time, access to tests was really limited. Were you able to actually get tested at that time? No, I went that Tuesday to urgent care and a doctor dressed in head-to-toe PPE told me that if I had not been in contact with someone who was from Italy or China, I was not high risk enough to be able to get the test. And of course, now we know that the virus was circulating everywhere at that time. (laughs) I mean, I think at the time we knew the virus was circulating, right? Like there was, were already reports of community spread. And I do think that the choice at that point in time to justify the lack of tests through that particular, um, uh, access ended up taking away a lot of trust that people had in the systems. Yeah. So as time went on, did you try and go back to the healthcare system and, and get more care? I did. Um, I was very lucky to have a very good primary care doctor who believed me, um, which was great because everywhere else did not. Um, there were consistent questions about whether or not I was exaggerating, whether or not um, I was really just very sick because of my weight, like just a a number of um, different things uh, when I was interacting, but it took a while. So did they actually just turn you away from the hospital? Like, Yes, I got turned away a couple times. Um, I Got ended up getting tested about a month later, which, as we know now, is like past the point of being able to detect um, the virus um, and uh, within in a test. And the it was a rapid test and it came back negative. Um, and I was expecting to get better. Right. I think that that was the at the time there was no long hauler diagnosis for people. So everyone thought that this was a two to four week thing. And when I was not getting better at the four week mark, we started to get really worried. And so what were your symptoms at that point? Yeah, I had a dry cough um, at that point in time, a pretty persistent pneumonia. I took about 17 days worth of antibiotics for the pneumonia um, low grade fever to very high fever. So it would go up and down like a roller coaster. I was, you know, I would be 99.5 and then I'd be 102.3. I'd be, then it'd come down and I'd be at 99.8 and then we'd go back to 101.7. Right. So that was the persistence of that lasted about two months, um, with every three days being a very high fever. 
um, and then a low-grade fever at the baseline. Wow. And how did that change your life? Um, I mean, I was sequestered into my apartment, right? Uh, I... I would say day nine, I was unsure whether or not when I went to sleep, if I would be able to wake up um, at the uh, in the morning. And I had written letters to all my family, just in case my family and friends. Um, and, you know, the people around me were getting sick, too. My community started to really feel my very Black and Latinx community um, started to reflect the numbers that we were seeing in our community around infection and people I loved were starting to go into the hospital. And with every person that got sick, you were reliving the beginning again. And, um, I went from being an incredibly active person to a very sedentary person, right? I had tachycardia pains in my legs and my abdomen, um, you know, through this process, I ended up getting my gallbladder removed. Like there were a number of different things that happened throughout the way. Yeah. I mean, we do know that one of the things that, that has happened is our Latinx community has been hit really hard. And um, do you have other people close to you who've had a similar experience to you or have really had severe illness? Um, yeah, um, there are 21 people in my family that have gotten sick. Um, and I, you know, I, that's uh, like aunts, uncles, cousins, um, you know, just a lot of family. Um, and you know, some folks with asymptomatic, some folks that are, were incredibly sick, um, and acutely sick. There's only one other long hauler in my close family group. Um, but there, it was varieties of, you know, some folks hospitalized, some folks not, you know, we were, we're a multi-generational multi-class family. And that is a situation that spread is fairly rampant within. And what has your family said to each other about this time and all these people who've gotten sick? Like, how are you dealing with it as a family? Um, my mom and I went to get a vaccine yesterday. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. It was a really big deal. Um, my grandmother passed away in December from COVID. Um, and we were in line for the vaccine and both of us were crying. Um, cause it just was so close to now, you know? Um, and so that's hard. The knowing how close we were before she went away um before this thing got her it does feel like (laughs) she got taken away not that she she passed you know um and you know we we kind of marvel at how terrible some parts of the year were there were parts of the year when there was so much fear of what was going to happen next that i just i thought the weight of it was going to crush my family um but everyone has stayed really like connected yeah what's yeah what sustained you what's kept you going I mean it was the other side of this right um I knew at the other side of this was like my niece was born four weeks into my illness um an illness that has now lasted a year right like I still have symptoms 
Um, I still have tachycardia that I'm managing with beta blockers. I um, am really working up my physical abilities and physical activity. I went from being able to row for one minute at a time to 25 minutes now, which is, which is great. Um, and I, my niece, I just, in my head, I was like, I have to make it cause I have to hold that baby, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which I did. Um, you know, we're a little pod now. Um, and I appreciate them so so much um my brother was there for me and you know can you imagine like my brother is a pilot <laughs> and uh whose industry has been hit quite a bit and he is a, a father of a newborn him and my sister-in-law really held me down um throughout this entire process wow i mean carl thank you so so much for spending this time with us and just sharing this incredibly intense experience with this virus. I mean, it's just such a reminder of what's really at stake here when we talk about protecting the public and the health inequities that have defined the response in the U.S. I mean, thank you so much. No problem. We told everyone like you will not regret. You will only regret not having quarantined. You will not regret <laughs> anything else. Uh, yeah, uh, this has been tough, and I I'm really glad to see the end of it for folks. Oh, thank you so much. Um, coming up after the break, we'll be joined by Stanford's Dr. Seema Yasmin and two KQED reporters who've been covering the pandemic in our Bay community since the beginning. And we want to hear from you too. When did you realize this situation was going to be really different from anything you'd experienced before? What's the last thing you did before the stay-at-home order kicked in at midnight on March 16th of last year? Call us at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. More after the break. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. We're talking about the shock of the early days of the pandemic. I'm Alexis Madrigal, your guest host uh, this week on Forum. We're now joined by Dr. Seema Yasmin, public health specialist and epidemiologist at Stanford University. Pendarvis Harsha, host of KQED's Right Nowish, And Leslie McClurg, KQED health reporter. Thanks to all of you. Leslie, let's start with you. Carla kind of traced the arc of this pandemic from the early days to now, and you've been covering it from the very beginning, too, even when the story was really about Wuhan. What was it like covering the pandemic when we still knew so little about the virus? It's almost in some ways kind of comical to look back and think back to the early days. I mean, I remember, you know, I'd woke up on in late January to a news report on NPR about some virus in China circulating. And I, you know, rolled into the office later on that day and was told that I should run to the SFA, S, excuse me, the San Francisco International Airport and greet the flight. And 
you know, get some tape from folks getting off a flight from Wuhan and find out what it's like in China where this virus is circulating. You know, so I did it. I'm standing outside of customs, you know, various people are coming off flights. I have no idea how to identify people from Wuhan or even honestly how to say the word. And so I'm standing there and eventually I'm able to track down some folks who speak very broken English. And the takeaway really is that they were really not that worried about things. They were super excited to come for Lunar New Year. There was a virus and people were getting sick. You know, they pulled down their masks to talk to me. We shook hands. I put my microphone in their face, you know, the very next day. That, that was the last flight that ever arrived, a direct flight from Wuhan to the U.S. And so overnight, I remember the, the, the number of cases, you know, doubling, tripling. But back then it was, you know, there was four cases or five, you know, it was, it was a slow doubling, but then it just took off. And by the day, you know, the number of cases, not in the U.S., but in China were just multiplying really, really quickly. But at the time we thought, you know, maybe this thing is kind of like the flu, maybe a little bit worse, potentially slightly, uh, you know, worse for some populations, maybe older Chinese men suffered worse than other populations. But looking back, the level of not knowing and how uneducated we were, especially as a country about a pandemic, you know, that an editor would send me to an airport. Can you imagine that <laughs> happening now? That would never happen again, right? And so I think it's just comical how little we knew about epidemics in general or viruses spreading, especially this generation. You know, maybe if you lived through the AIDS crisis or you're old enough to have lived through polio or something like that, you might have a different point of reference. Yeah. But for me, I have very little reference. Yeah. Dr. Yasmin, um, because of your training experience with other diseases, you were a little bit more prepared or a lot more prepared uh, than the average person or average reporter. Um, we want to play you a clip um, of some of your predictions from last year on this show. This is a story of health inequity, unequal access to health care, and about rich people having the means, the resources, the time, the networks to protect themselves while the homeless the incarcerated, people living on the margins of society, those are the people I worry about the most. Looking back at uh, that prediction, what do you think? I think it's so painful that that played out. Our worst fears played out in terms of who would be disproportionately burdened with higher rates of disease and higher rates of death. And I say our worst fears panned out, but it was almost even worse than we could have imagined, Alexis, in terms of just how big those disparities were. And that, of course, we've seen throughout this calendar year, but now we're seeing it play out in terms of vaccine access and in terms of rich Californians taking access codes for vaccines that are really supposed to be for poorer people, people who are marginalized and who are at higher risk of getting sick or dying from COVID-19. So that, that issue of inequity, of this being so unequal in that, yes, it would affect everyone, but it would affect everyone to different extents. That has really played out in quite a predictable way. Remembering back to that early moment, was there something you expected to happen that, that didn't actually end up happening? So many things. So in January of last year, one of the things that I do at Stanford is to teach a class on health journalism. So myself and my journalism students were talking about this early on as we were seeing the case reports come out of Wuhan and other parts of China. And I was thinking then that 
Hmm. And you, you describe me as being perhaps more prepared, I would say more paranoid, because I'm always thinking about epidemics, given my training. And I guess an important piece of context is the reason I'm in the US is I moved here a decade ago, expressly to serve as an officer in the epidemic intelligence service at the CDC. But that's kind of like my lens on the US and of the world. So myself and my journalism students were talking about this. And one of the things we were saying was, well, the countries, especially in Asia, that were hit hard with SARS in 2002 and 2003. They have fever clinics, they have fever hospitals, they have mechanisms in place that might protect them to more of an extent than if this arrived here in the US. But then, and here are the two things I was thinking would happen that did not happen. One was that I just expected any issues with testing for COVID-19, which we had lots of issues with the CDC early on, I expected those to get resolved a lot faster than they did. And that was based on my experience of working at CDC and my analysis of previous pandemics like H1N1 flu in 2009, where CDC was a global leader in providing testing, not just for the US, but other parts of the world. And the second thing was- Well, let me, can I ask you about testing? access. Sure. What well, what was it about the lack of tests? Like, what did that actually do to our response? It slowed us down incredibly because epidemiology 101 and epidemic response 101 is case finding. Who is infected? Who isn't? Where is the infection? Where isn't it just yet? And not only did we really slow down because we didn't have physical test kits, but then, and, and Carla mentioned this as well, we had really restrictive guidelines for healthcare providers about who could or could not get tested, right? You had to have been to China, had contact with somebody from China. And those guidelines really confused so many of us epidemiologists and healthcare providers who were like, but we have an inkling this is already here. So we were, we knew there were cases, there were deaths right here in Santa Clara County where I live, very close to me. So why wasn't contact with somebody in this area considered a risk factor for contracting the infection? Why couldn't that person also get a COVID test? So that was one of the issues. And the other thing I was gonna mention really quickly sure. was access to PPE. Many of us knew that after the 2009 H1N1 outbreak, that the US's national strategic stockpile had been depleted of N95 respirators. And so our eyes were on that, like how quickly would we be able to replenish those supplies Instead, what we saw was months of really bizarre federal and state level government contracts with some shady organizations, sometimes just really bizarre contracts going through millions of dollars of taxpayers money getting lost and still on the front lines, nurses, doctors, respiratory technicians reusing PPE that was supposed to be for one time use only. That floored me. And I think globally, you know, as someone who has lived here for a decade, but is a Brit who who looks at how the, the rest of the world views the US, I think those two things were incredibly damning, but also really damaging and slowed us down in our pandemic response. Yeah. And, and also still remains quite mysterious what happened with all that PPE as well. I don't think we've quite figured that one out. Um, Penn, I want to bring you into the conversation um, when all these announcements began to come out, the stay-at-home orders, the school closures, what was the first thought that came to your mind about what was in store for you and, and your communities? Yeah, uh, bringing myself back to that time, I think it, there were a lot of jokes 
um, like, and I think it might have come out of hysteria or maybe um, out of fear as a coping mechanism. But looking back at some of the things that transpired, like uh, NBA star Rudy Gobert touching all the microphones before the NBA shut down. Yeah, I remember and, that. Yeah, and that was like a big thing, right? And he was kind of lackadaisical about it. And then come to find out that he actually had COVID and spread it to his teammates. And that's when people started to take it a little more seriously. And then the news about Tom Hanks and uh, his wife, uh, Rita Wilson, having COVID, people started to take it a little more seriously. And that was um, around March 12th of last year. And so by this time, you know, looking at the 16th, when the word came down from the higher ups in the state, I think people took it really seriously. Um, And that's when people just started devising plans. You know, I started to think about, you know, what schooling looked like. Um, I was working on a story about the East Oakland, uh, uh, Eastmont Mall and how they had a black arts exposition and they started to pivot that area into a um, black cultural zone, which is now a resource center for people. And just seeing that um, the early stages of that community response was, um, it was one alarming to see how, even myself, I took it as a joke initially, but then it was beautiful to see people um, start pivot and think about what resources they would need uh, for the long haul. And, and what about you as a parent? You know, I know you have a, a little one at home. Um, what did you do to get yourself ready to suddenly, you know, have no school or childcare? Uh, you know, first thing was, you know, checking in. I'm not parenting alone. So co-parenting and um, making sure that we have a plan and we stick to it. And um, I relied on my experience as a teacher um, developing curriculum and really looking at like, what does this three-year-old need so that she can be happy and healthy in the midst of all of this? Um, and then also realizing that, you know, learning about, um, I don't know, how to spell right now isn't as important as learning how to wash your hands properly. <laughs> um, let's um, take some calls. We've got a bunch of people here on the line. Um, let's uh, go to Adam from El Cerrito. Hi. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Uh, my name is Adam. I'm in El Cerrito, and I vividly recall last year, I was looking at some old phone photos earlier this morning from March 11th, and sitting on my regular BART commute home. I'm in El Cerrito. I work down in Fremont, and I got on a usually crowded, packed-like-a-sardine commuter train, and it was completely empty. And as a geographer, we talk a lot about the idea that the story of a place is the story of a people in a place, and there were no people in that place. And it was very clear that something was very different was afoot. Oh, man. Thank you, Adam. I I have seen those empty bar trains. Um, Leslie, as you've been moving around uh, reporting on the pandemic, um, what's the city look like to you? I mean, it's interesting now, you mean back back then, I mean, it, what was interesting was that it felt like a big blanket just got sort of unleashed on the city and, and, and no more movement happened. It, it was really shocking to me how overnight people really stepped in line because there was all this talk before it actually went down. Would people follow it? Would people break the rules? Like, you know, San Franciscans and Bay Area folks are pretty free thinking people. Are we really gonna step in line? And I was really shocked by how quickly and how f- just surprisingly 
people stopped their movement and how quiet it got. I don't know if people remember, but the air got cleaner and there was a silence and the birds got louder. There was all this more animal movement. And, you know, for about that first three weeks, six weeks, it was surprising how different the city felt. No traffic. People really weren't moving. And then I would say it's come in and out throughout the year. As the virus has surged, we maybe have those quiet moments again. And then as things open up, you begin to feel a little bit of normalcy. But I would say we still are really far from that sense of normalcy. If you go downtown, you know, where our offices are or were, um, it's a completely different kind of ghost ghost town compared to what San Francisco, that thriving metropolis, what it used to be. We're, we're pretty far from normal now and a lot of closed businesses in different parts of the Bay Area. A lot more homelessness, too. Yeah. Penn, you've covered a lot of arts and culture, big events, um, just, you know, people putting on exhibitions and, and shows. What's it been like for for that community? And and when did you see people really take hold for people that, oh, wait, we're actually not going to have shows. We're not going to have our art exhibitions. I saw it immediately. People understood. You know, once once you tell a DJ that wedding season is canceled, it's like, whoa, that's a big chunk of their check. Um, And so, yeah, I immediately saw people pivoting to using the digital space. Um, There's an artist by the name of Ryan Nicole out of Oakland who was – uh, multi-talented um she was one of the first people i saw to have a, a sort of talent show online for uh poets and other artists out there who just wanted to express themselves during this time because there's obviously the thing about revenue generating but there's the other thing about like being an artist and wanting to just be in community and uh, share your art with people as a means of catharsis you know just like as a therapy um so i, I saw that immediately and um, i've been following it ever since and it's changed and people have become burnt out of zoom meetings and you know zoom performances <laughs> um and I, I think a lot of people are really excited to look at the potential of getting back in person absolutely um, let's take another call. Let's go to Sarah in Napa. Hi. Hello. Yes. Um, thank you for taking my call. Uh, I have two answers to some of your questions. And uh, the first was when I knew it was very serious, when uh, my brother, who has moved all the way across the country, living in Brooklyn, told me that he was on significant lockdown uh, and they would see prior to that some body bags um, behind sorry get emotional behind some hospitals so he said this is extremely serious and you guys need to take this serious because we're seeing it firsthand and it of course hit in Brooklyn and New York City very early and uh, he said you know you listen to those lockdowns and you you be safe with your family and take care. And it was it was significant hearing this from him. And prior to uh, the lockdown, uh, taking my two sons to the ocean, which is a joy for us. We knew that that wasn't going to be for a long time. So we headed to Bodega and just sat and marveled at the beauty and talked about what could be ten- potentially be coming. So we felt incredibly blessed to take that moment and just knowing, hearing from my brother about body bags and people. And one thing that happened to him that was incredible, there was a man, that, a senior, that fell down, and he was clearly sick, and he was asking and pleading for help, and people wouldn't help him because they were afraid. And uh, that's when it hit home. And Napa County did a phenomenal job shutting it down, and uh, so we knew it was serious then. Wow. And uh, I just wanted to share that. And thank you for the time. And I feel blessed 
that uh, my family is safe and none of us, fortunately to this point, have had the pandemic uh, hit us hard with COVID-19. So uh, thank you for taking this call. Thank you for that, Sarah. Thanks for sharing that with us. Um, Dr. Yasmin, when we think about communities, you know, one thing I heard early in the pandemic from one of my colleagues was that sometimes they can tear us apart, unlike a a natural disaster that would bring us together. Um, What did you think was going to happen across the country to, to communities? Well, one thing that we saw that was really powerful early on, Alexis, was mutual aid, was communities actually stepping in to have each other's back within their neighborhood, um, within their faith-based groups, at the mosque, at the synagogue, wherever, in place, many instances, of government help of actual real effective communication. So I think we saw, yes, communities were really badly hit. We talked about how the disparities were huge at one point. Black Americans living in Kansas were seven times more likely to die from COVID than their white Kansan neighbors. But aside from that, as well as that awful devastation, we saw communities step in where leadership and governments were failing them. And that was really powerful support, both in logistical terms, helping people get access to testing, helping people get to health uh, appointments, but then also the communication part, which is the part that I'm really interested in and study, we saw effective communication happen at the community level where it was hyper-localized messaging that was really targeted to people's particular fears and concerns. Uh, Thank you, Dr. Yasmin. We're talking about the shock of the early days of the pandemic with Dr. Yasmin, Penn Harsha, and Leslie McClurg, KQD reporters. Um, Thanks so much, and we'll have more for you after the break. hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? you left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back. We want to hear from you. Uh, when did you realize the situation was going to be different from anything that you'd experienced before? And what's the last thing you did before the stay-at-home order kicked in at midnight on March 16th of last year? Give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org got a uh, listener comment here from Alejandro. At some point, might you discuss what could have been? I keep thinking back to the early days, how desperately I wanted the government to shut everything down. For three weeks, everyone stayed home. We'd spend all payments. We'll send money. What are the lessons for next time? Dr. Yasmin, do you want to address how, how could things have gone differently? 
I sometimes try not to think about this, Alexis, because it gets depressing when you think about the lives that could have been saved. Even hearing, it was so devastating hearing Carla talk about her and her mother go to get their vaccine just weeks after her grandmother died from COVID. And you think about how, how close that time period was, how many lives could have been saved. I think about all the work that could have been done. I mean, forget even just in the first weeks or months of the pandemic, but in the years prior to the pandemic, the epidemiologists and infectious disease researchers out there have been publishing for years articles about coronaviruses circulating in bats that look like they have all the hallmarks of being able to cross over from bats into humans, right? So the warning signs were there. We know that epidemics are becoming more frequent, more urban and larger and potentially deadlier. There's this kind of coming together of climate change and inequity and all these things that just creates this perfect storm environment. So I think about that, what could have been done in the years prior to 2020, the strategic national stockpile, for example, being replenished after the resources there were depleted. And then of course, I think about, yes, the early weeks, the first few months of the pandemic, what lessons could we have learned from Asian countries, not necessarily in terms of like really large scale quarantines, because there are all sorts of ethical issues there, but in terms of having resources for people so that if you had a fever and you were waiting to get tested, you didn't go back home to where your grandmother lived and your you know, young siblings live, for example, you perhaps had a model closer to what was available in parts of China where you went somewhere where you were safe and you kept your loved ones safe whilst you got tested, whilst you got diagnosed and, and whilst you recuperated. So there were, I mean, we could spend hours talking about that, right? And we're going to have to do those analyses soon after this, because in public health, we talk about this phenomenon called the panic neglect cycle, where you panic, 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 when in the middle of the crisis, the outbreak's really bad. And then it's over. And then you're like, yeah, this bad thing happened. But you know what? It's done now. We cannot fall into that neglect trap again. Um, Leslie, you know, you've been reporting on this throughout. And one of the things that reporters have heard from public health officials through time has just been, wow, that so many cuts have come to public health. And is there a sense that there's enough money in the COVID rescue package that the Biden administration got passed to actually make a difference in preparing us for the future? I think there's hope. I think there's a lot of hope. I think this staying power is what we really question. So like Dr. Yasmin just said, you know, the, 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 the cycle is panic and then we make a plan and here we have the money, but will it really, will we keep focused and will we not slash those budgets in the future? I think is the, is the question that everyone is asking. Public health is often the thing that gets slashed for other things that are more pressing in the moment, and then we pay the price for that. And will a half a million lives be a big enough price tag to actually change the course of things? Like I said, I think there's a lot of hope, but we'll see. Let's um, go to a caller that had a particularly interesting early pandemic experience, Katie in Sausalito. Yeah. Hi. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Okay. Um, I deploy with the National Disaster Medical System um, to assist with disasters. And a year ago today, I was actually driving home from my first COVID deployment. I'd been working with people who had been in sick bay on the Grand Princess cruise ship. And I got home the day the Bay Area shut down, day one of many. Currently, I'm on my fifth deployment, 
And I'm tired. Please, people, continue to wear your masks and social distance. Get a vaccine if you can. I really miss hugs and dancing. You know, I just feel like our frontline people, we've been on for a year now. Yeah. I think we all can relate to missing hugs and dancing. It's been, it's been yeah. a long time since yeah. we could do those things. Um, thank you so much for your, your service and your, your call, Katie. Appreciate that. Oh, you're welcome. And stay safe, everybody. Thanks. i got a couple of uh, listener comments here. Roger writes, we didn't know how big this would be, but I was sure if it was a pandemic that we would unite and fight it together. I was shocked to see how the parties divided and how oppositional religious leaders would be in supporting preventive actions. Lena tweets, For me, those empty grocery store shelves and hoarded goods being sold at higher prices reveal two things for me. The precariousness of the systems we rely on for basic goods and services in emergency and the willingness of folks to provide for me and mine over the most vulnerable. Dr. Yasmin, We've, we've talked a little bit about communities um, already. Did other countries around the world see more cohesiveness in their response? I mean, obviously, we had uh, the Trump administration um, in, in office, which did not perhaps do the most that we could imagine to try and unite the country around fighting the pandemic. So did other places do better? Yes. And no. And there were really some big surprises here, Alexis, in terms of if you had got public health researchers and epidemiologists this time last year to project, like, where is this pandemic going to go? Now we've declared it a pandemic. Which nations will be hardest hit? I think our projections would have been wrong. And it's too soon to say right now why things have panned out exactly the way they have. For example, Nigeria's COVID death rate is one one hundredth of the United States. And India's COVID death rate, and India's been hit hard by COVID, but its death rate is one tenth of the US's death rate, just to kind of give it a bit of a global perspective too. And it's still an epidemiological mystery as to why some nations have been hardest hit. Because yeah, you can point to incompetent leadership, you can point to really polarized nations. You can look at particular resources, the infrastructure of healthcare systems and public healthcare systems, but it doesn't really like account for everything. And so as, as an epidemiologist, you tell me that a nation like India or maybe Nigeria has these much lower death rates compared to the US. The first thing I would say, well, is there undercounting? But when you look at the numbers and you look at the way they're under, maybe undercounted, it still doesn't account for why there'd be such massive differences in death rates between nations. So the the one thing I want to say here, and I hope no one misconstrues our hour-long conversation as reflections on a pandemic that's over, right? Because the pandemic is very much not over. And right now, I still think it's too early to really come up with definitive answers as to why the UK did so badly. Belgium, Italy, Spain, the US, why India, Nigeria, and other nations had much lower death rates, for example. I think we're going to need some more time to figure that out, and we're going to need the pandemic to end, which it hasn't yet. Well, in the Bay Area itself has had much better outcomes than almost every metro area um, in the country. I mean, how much of that do you think we can attribute to the policy, the early action of officials like Sarah Cody and other health officers? And how much do you think it was other factors like 
mild weather, communitarian culture or something else? I think a lot of that difference in how the Bay Area has fared compared to other parts of California actually comes down to something that we call the social vulnerability index, which takes over a dozen different factors like overcrowding, housing, access, um, access to healthcare, economics, all these things to come up with a score as to how vulnerable is a particular area to things like the epidemic spread of a disease. And when you look at some Bay Area counties, San Mateo, Santa Clara, Contra Costa, our social vulnerability scores are pretty good. We're not that vulnerable. They're like less than 0.4 on a scale that goes from zero, which is the lowest, and one, which is the most vulnerable, right? So that's the Bay Area, generally looks pretty good. Then you look at LA County, its social vulnerability score is like double what some of these Bay Area County scores, like not 0.8. And then you look at the Central Valley and it's 0.97, again, with one being the highest, the, the most vulnerable you can be. I think that accounts for a lot more of the disparities that we've seen in COVID infections and COVID deaths. And one of the things that still pains me is we didn't have policies that supported people to stay at home when they were feeling sick. And so our most vulnerable communities, our essential workers and our frontline workers were forced to continue living paycheck to paycheck, going to work when they didn't feel well, going to work when there were outbreaks at work, which not only put them at really high risk, but then put their entire communities at risk. So in terms of policies, we should have seen more and we should still be seeing more that addresses houselessness, that addresses the merging of formerly incarcerated people back into their communities and just supports people to stay at home and not live paycheck to paycheck in the middle of a global pandemic. Absolutely. And I think your your point is well taken that the pandemic is not over. Obviously, relative to where we were in December and January, cases are, are way down, but levels of transmission remain high. And Leslie, what are you hearing now about um, the the odds that we're going to see another surge in the, the coming weeks? There is that possibility. You know, the, the experts that I've talked to generally always mention that as a possibility that these uh, variants that we're seeing could, you know, be stronger than or or surprisingly kind of make it so that the vaccine doesn't unleash quite as strongly, even though the vaccine is still quite successful. There's just a possibility that this surge could arise via the variants in the, in the equation, as well as as things open up, it really depends on how well people continue to socially distance and wear their masks and, and follow those pandemic protocols. It's really in our hands whether or not we'll see another surge. And the possibility is definitely still there. There is still quite a bit of virus on the ground. I just actually went to a high hospital this last week for the first time, you know, inside a hospital and saw the ICU. It, it definitely did not feel over. You know, while I was there, there was a code blue and someone died and there were several other patients in very bad condition. So people need to, or I hope they will, will continue, even though there's a lot of hope in the air. Um, remember that we're not, we're not out of the clear yet. You know, outside the hospitals, it has started to feel, at least in neighborhoods, like maybe things are, are ending. People are loosening up a little bit. Penn, are you seeing that uh, among your friends and family and community? I definitely am seeing more people start to socialize. You know, the weather is breaking. Spring starts officially this coming weekend. Um, and yeah, 
I've I've seen people kind of get out there a little more and uh, seeing a lot more events. And I'd have that conversation with my editors. Like when, when do we decide to start promoting in-person events? Um, you know, I don't want to champion something that could lead to something, somebody getting sick. And so um, it's an ongoing discussion. And um, yeah, I think what's just been said is really true. Like, let's be cautious because um just because there is a vaccine out there. Um, and at last I read, we were around like 20% vaccinated in the state of California. Um, that doesn't mean that it's it's just safe to go out all willy-nilly. Cool. Let's take uh, another call. We've got um, Noel in Sunnyvale with a, a memory of the before times. Hi. Yeah, thank you for taking my call. I just wanted to say two quick things. Number one, if ever there was a time to say, to use the phrase, that you know you 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 failed to plan then you plan to fail this would be the, the the prime example right i don't think we were in any way ready for this and being someone who similar to your guest moved here from europe uh, about a decade ago i was getting all kinds of better information from home than what was available here in america and i just hope that we can uh, make sure that we put the right resources in place to make sure that you know whatever happens in the future that we're ready for it um, just on a personal level as well, uh, you know, I was out for dinner. It was the last time I went to a restaurant for my birthday, which was a year ago, and uh, the news report came in. The chefs in the kitchen were reacting to it, and the server came out and said, you know, you're going to be our last guest for a very long time, and that's when it really hit me, you know. Um, I, I knew it was serious, but, you know, having her say that and having her be more informed as a server, no disrespect to servers, but, you know, she seemed to see that the, 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 the gravity of the, uh, of the, uh, the seriousness of the, of the situation, and I'll never forget that moment. Uh, thank you so much, Noel, for your, uh, for your call. I want to um, read uh, a listener comment from uh, Bob. It says, I will always remember that time from March 17th through June 1st as the time everyone got to temporarily feel the same way I feel all the time. The weirds, I believe it was called. It was the most freeing time of my life. I'm on the autism spectrum and always socially confused. I'm a sociable recluse, which kind of describes what people were living through. It also felt like we all actually teamed up together as a whole human community. And I will miss this era. So let me ask uh, you, Leslie, is there anything you're going to miss about this time as bad as it has been? Absolutely. (laughs) You know, I haven't wanted to mention that because it feels like it's maybe disregard of of the people who have been really hit hard. But I remember in the early weeks, especially being like, please don't end the lockdown. Please don't end the lockdown because the Bay Area and, you know, a my, my life is just generally so, so busy and I'm a new mom and I had a little girl and it was so lovely to be at home and to be completely focused on my family and not have a big social calendar and or a bunch of work events. And I could just really f- focus on just a few tasks, which at the time was, you know, reporting and being a mom. And suddenly it was quite relieving. So my prayer to all of us in this time is that there there are some big lessons about slowing things down and remembering what's important and and just 
being less busy, <laughs> that there's some beauty in that. And, and I hope we've been in it long enough that we will, you know, that will shift. I mean, all of us haven't been going out at night, you know, many nights in a row for a long time. And so I think there's going to be a bit of an overstimulation when things, when things start opening up. So I hope we'll just find a different, a different way of navigating life that's less frenetic and less busy. And I, I hope that's a, a silver lining. Yeah. Listener Ariel um, has a similar thought. I don't think we talk enough about the benefits we've reaped, um, she writes, from environmental to the general slowing down of life. Last March, when my son came home from college, I got three special months with him. And when my company cut us to halftime, I started a passion business. I developed several new hobbies and took yoga classes from teachers around the world. It doesn't negate those who've suffered tremendously. And I realize in many ways my experience is one of privilege that I was able to work from home. But I think it bears saying that even the darkest of days deliver silver linings. Um, Dr. Yasmin, I want to give you the last word here on what you think we have uh, in store for us over the next few weeks. We're going to have to be really careful about the fact that loads of people are trying to get back to some kind of normal, given the spread of variants and given just how unequal access to vaccines has has been. So we're going to have to be careful about that. And I think we're just going to have to, even though we're not out of the pandemic yet, and I want to make that really clear, just in case it sounds like we're reflecting because things are much better now. They are better, but we have still the potential for things to get worse. And I also want us to reflect on how ableist our pandemic response has been, how bad we've been at protecting the most vulnerable and marginalized in our society. And some of the things that we've made happen over the last year, like working from home, like getting people to wear PPE, there are people living with chronic diseases and with disabilities that have been advocating for that for decades. And suddenly when it was a pandemic, you know, we made that a possibility for everyone. So I guess my final words would be panic neglect cycle is real. We cannot fall back into that. And even right now, still in a pandemic, we can't take our eye off the ball. Thank you so much to our guests, Dr. Seema Yasmin, Penn Darvis Harshaw, Leslie McClurg. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Another hour of Forum is next with Mina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, and I hope you'll join me on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Every Thursday, I'm getting the inside take from the best reporters in the country on what figures like Elon Musk, Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy, and Marjorie Taylor Greene are doing. I think she wants to make things happen. She wants to get legislation passed. She made clear to me that she wants to have a president who upholds Christian values. She embraces the term Christian nationalist. That's Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Available wherever you get your podcasts.